I want us to return this morning to the passage that formed the backdrop of last week's message on spiritual blindness and its cure. I want us to return to the parable of the hidden treasure from Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. It goes like this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and he sells all that he has and he buys that field. The parable of the hidden treasure is about how a person enters into the kingdom of heaven, and it contains two distinct movements. First, a man sees a treasure hidden in a field which evidently no one else could see. Then, seeing that treasure is infinitely valuable, he is then overjoyed and he goes and he sells all that he has in order to buy that field. Seeing and selling. These are the two movements of the parable. And I established last week that the treasure hidden in the field is Jesus Christ and all that he is for us, including the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life with him in the new heaven and the new earth. Jesus is the treasure, and entering the kingdom of heaven means obtaining him. And the point of this parable is that obtaining Christ involves Two distinct yet interrelated steps, seeing and selling. Now last week we focused upon the first of those steps, seeing Jesus as the treasure worth selling everything to obtain. And we established that the treasure of Christ is by nature hidden from our sight because all of us are born into this world spiritually blind. When the world looks at Jesus, it does not see infinite treasure. It does not see infinite glory. It sees a fraud or maybe a myth or a stumbling block on their way to the pleasures of this world or a pretender who thought he was something but was mistaken, or a prophet, or a good moral teacher, or an irrelevant historical figure, and many other opinions besides. That's what the world sees when they look at Jesus. What they do not see is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the treasure of heaven. This is because we are by nature doubly blind. We are blinded by Satan, and we are blinded by our own sin, which causes us to love the darkness and to hate the light. This spiritual blindness was embodied in the Pharisees, who were completely blind to the divine glory of Christ, demanding signs from him in order to trap him, as we saw last week in verses 11 to 13. This spiritual blindness was still resident in some degree in Jesus' own disciples, who, although they had seen something in Jesus worth following, still they were blind to his glory and they failed to trust him. Verses 14 to 21. This spiritual blindness and its cure was illustrated in the healing of the blind man of Bethsaida, 
whose healing demonstrated that only God can heal the spiritual blindness that hinders us from seeing his glory, but that this healing often comes in stages. Verses 22 to 26. And then finally, in verses 27 to 30, we saw the blindness healed in the case of Simon Peter when Jesus asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus, in Matthew's version, tells him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He saw in that moment the treasure. Seeing is a miracle of divine grace. That's why I prayed for it already twice in this service. I prayed for it the entire time that we were singing. I prayed for it this morning before any of you even showed up. It's a miracle of divine grace when people who are by nature doubly blind, blinded by Satan and blinded by our own sin, see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Only God can make blind eyes see. Only God can lift the veil of deception such that we see Jesus for who he truly, truly is, the incarnate glory of the Father. So Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, when he said that even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord with ourselves as your bondservant for Christ's sake. And listen to what he says happens when we proclaim Christ and serve others in Jesus' name. The same God who said light shall shine forth in the darkness shines into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Seeing is the first step to entering the kingdom. The first thing that happened in the parable was that the man found the treasure, and he saw in that treasure something whose value far outweighed everything that he owned, so that in his joy at having found a, an, a treasure of infinite worth, he goes and he sells all that he has in order to obtain that field. And he does so not begrudgingly, not with his teeth gritted, he does so willingly and joyfully. Because he's seen the treasure. Seeing is the prerequisite to selling. So today, we're going to focus on the second step of entering the kingdom. Last week, we focused on seeing. This week, we focus on selling. Selling everything that we have in order to obtain the treasure, which is Christ and our everlasting inheritance in Him. What does it mean to sell everything that we have? What does it look like in reality? What does it look like in our actual lives? The remainder of Mark chapter 8 provides us with the answer to that question. It means two distinct yet interrelated truths. Number one, Selling everything that we have to obtain the treasure means believing in a suffering Messiah. 
I want to jump back this morning to verse 27 and pick up Peter's confession because it provides the necessary backdrop to the conversation that transpires between Jesus and Peter and then Jesus and the rest of the disciples. Mark chapter 8 and verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. But he asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Well, Jesus and his disciples have left Bethsaida, which is where they were in verses 22 to 26, where the blind man was healed. Bethsaida is a village that sits on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he leads them some 25 miles due north to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which sits at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is the source of the Jordan River. Caesarea Philippi was a pagan, Gentile-dominated region, and why Jesus journeyed there will become clear next week because Mount Hermon is most likely the site of Jesus' transfiguration. It is probably that high mountain to which Jesus leads Peter, James, and John and transfigures and reveals his glory. We'll talk about that next week and in the weeks to come. Mark 8.29 marks the midpoint of the gospel. Mark's gospel is bookended by two great confessions of faith. Mark begins his gospel by announcing the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he brings his gospel to its soaring climax with a Roman centurion who's standing at the foot of the cross and watching Jesus die. And Mark 15.38 says, And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man is the Son of God. So Mark begins his gospel by telling us this is the story, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He ends his gospel by having a Roman centurion declaring, Truly this man is the Son of God. And then at the very midway point, he has Jesus' disciples, particularly Peter, declaring that you are are the Christ, in Matthew's version, the Son of the living God. This is the gospel of the Son of God, the gospel of Mark. But what did Peter mean by this confession? What did he mean when he called Jesus the Christ? Ha Christos in the Greek. Well, that Greek word Christos translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, which we would transliterate into the word Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. And in Old Testament Israel, there were three anointed offices. There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. And it's this third office that was generally associated with the messianic hopes of Israel. When they spoke spoke of the Messiah, the anointed one to come, they had in mind a coming king. For instance, in Jeremiah 23, 5, We read these words, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So the popular expectation in first century Israel, which would have been shared by the disciples, was that the Messiah to come, the Messiah that they expected, was going to be a wise and powerful Davidic king. According to James Edwards, quote, Though entirely human, the Messiah would nevertheless be greater than God's earlier messengers to Israel. According to the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, when they're asked who they were hoping for, they said, we hoped this was the anointed one. We had hoped he was the Messiah, one who was powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. He would be endowed with miraculous powers and be mighty and wise in the Holy Spirit. The Messiah would be holy and free from sin. The final anointed one and true king of Israel who would destroy God's enemies by the word of his mouth. He would deliver Jerusalem from the Gentiles, gather the faithful from the dispersion and rule in justice and glory. If you were to walk up to a first century Jew and ask them, what kind of Messiah are you expecting? That's the kind of Messiah they would have released. To you. A wise, powerful, holy, Davidic king who's going to destroy God's enemies and is going to reign over God's people. More than likely, that's what Peter had in mind when he says, You are the Christ. We have come to the conclusion that you are the Messiah we have looked for. The problem is the Messiah they have looked for is not exactly like the Messiah that Jesus had come to be. This conception of Jesus is not wrong so far as it goes. This conception of the Messiah is not wrong. It just doesn't go far enough. For before the Messiah could reign as Israel's king, he must suffer as Israel's Passover lamb. And that was something the disciples did not yet understand, not even Peter. That's probably why Jesus, immediately after this confession, commands them to silence in verse 30. They did not yet fully understand what it meant for him to be the Christ, and neither would the people that they went and told. And so he says, don't tell them, they won't understand. To go around declaring that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ would conjure in the minds of the people a militaristic king like David and would further hinder what Jesus had come to accomplish. Jesus had come to conquer, not with a sword, but with a cross. And that's precisely why in verse 31, Jesus begins to redefine the disciples' concept of the Messiah. Not in terms of power and conquest, but in terms of suffering and death. Verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. I want to focus on that one little word translated in my Bible as must. Maybe you have, it is necessary. Why? Why is it necessary that the Son of Man suffer many things, be rejected by the Jewish leaders, be killed, and after three days, 
rise again. Why, why could the Messiah not come like everybody expected, like that conquering king who would restore the kingdom to Israel and reign in righteousness and justice as the Jews expected? Well, I think the answer is clear. If the Messiah came first to reign as a king over a kingdom in righteousness and justice and peace, he would have no one over whom to reign. He would be a sovereign with no subjects. Because unrighteous people cannot enter into a kingdom of righteousness. In other words, the Messiah could establish his everlasting kingdom But if he's going to have people to populate this kingdom, it was necessary that the problem of the people's sin first be addressed. Atonement needed to be made. And as the law makes clear, Leviticus 17.11, atonement is only possible through the shedding of blood. The penalty for death is sin, and therefore the atonement for sin can only be made through the death of of a sacrifice. That's why the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected, and be killed. Before the Messiah can be the Savior of His people, He must become the sacrifice for His people. Before He can reign over His people in righteousness and peace, He must first redeem His people from sin and death and hell. This truth was not unheard of in the Old Testament, but by and large, the people of Israel were blind to this mystery, which is why they missed the Messiah when he came. It was foreshadowed, for instance, in the sacrificial system. During the long centuries when the people brought their their guilt offerings and their sin offerings, and every year as they observed the Day of Atonement, they were foreshadowing the need of a suffering Messiah who made himself a sacrifice for the sins of his people. It was prophesied in Isaiah's song of the suffering servant. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's there for those who had eyes to see. This was God's predestined plan from all eternity. The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by his own people, and be killed. Only then could he rise to reign forever in righteousness and peace. This is the gospel. First comes the cross, and only then comes the crown. This is what Jesus tried to tell his disciples on at least three separate occasions during this final march to Jerusalem. He says it in Mark 8.31, he says it again in Mark 9.31, and he says it again in Mark 10.33. And this is what Peter did not yet comprehend. Like the blind men of Bethsaida, he, just, he sees men walking as though trees. It's hazy. And that's why he says the stupid thing that he says in verses 32 and 33. And Jesus said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. 
For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter understood what Jesus said because he had spoken clearly. But what he could not comprehend was how these predicted sufferings fit in with what Jesus, or what Peter rather, thought he knew about the expected Messiah. They didn't, they didn't jive. Therefore, in a moment of almost incomprehensible ignorance and arrogance and presumption, Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked the Lord of glory as if he were a child. I can almost picture the scene and it's almost too awkward to watch. Peter taking Jesus by the shoulder and leading him away from the rest of the twelve and rather sternly telling Jesus that he was wrong about who he was. That he had misunderstood his calling, that the Messiah was to reign on Israel's throne, not die by Israel's hand. I imagine Jesus looking at Peter silently, patiently, allowing for the entire foot to fit into the mouth. But then Jesus turns and he sees something that causes him to respond. What does he see? He sees the other disciples gathering near, watching, being influenced. This is is a misunderstanding that Jesus cannot allow to foster within the disciples and fester within their hearts. It needs to be addressed. And so Jesus addresses it in the most forceful way imaginable. Get behind me, Satan. I imagine Peter stopping dead in his tracks, his mouth agape, his face suddenly flushed with embarrassment and shame. See, Jesus recognized this for what it was. There was something more sinister behind Peter's rebuke than mere ignorance or arrogance. Behind Peter's words, Jesus heard the hissing voice of the one who had spoken in the garden. Peter, in that moment, had unwittingly become a pawn in Satan's hand. The same enemy who had tempted Jesus to forsake the way of the cross on the road to glory in the wilderness temptations was again tempting Jesus to walk away from the path that was laid out for him, the path that ended in Jerusalem on Golgotha, nailed to a cross. See, the people were ready to receive him as the Messiah that they had imagined. They were ready to follow him as the Messiah that they wanted. They were ready to follow him as their king. So says John 6.15. All Jesus had to do was go into Jerusalem, embrace their expectations, perform a few miracles, and the whole nation would follow after him, and he would reign over all the kingdoms of the world. But to do so would have been to have rejected the way of God in favor of the way of man, and this Jesus could not and would not do. The second Adam must succeed where the first Adam failed. First the cross, then the crown. That was the will of God for his son, and that was the path he had to tread. And it's the path that every one of us must tread as well. Because obtaining the treasure means not only believing in a suffering Messiah, it means becoming his suffering disciple. See, this was a teachable moment, and Jesus seized it. He seized it in order to set the record straight, 
not only as to what it meant for him to lead, but what it meant for them to follow. James Edwards again writes, a wrong view of messiahship leads to a wrong view of discipleship. And so Jesus summons the whole crowd, as well as his disciples, and he spoke to them some of the hardest words that we face in the New Testament. Let's read them once again. And calling the crowds to him with his disciples, he said to them, Would you pause for a second? I want you to put their, yourself in their shoes. And I want you to hear these as though Jesus were speaking them to you. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So let us make no mistake, Jesus invites all of his disciples, including those gathered here at First Baptist Nixa, all who want to follow him on the road to glory, he invites them first to join him on his death march. The image which Jesus conjures here by these words is that of a condemned criminal bearing his own cross, the instrument of his own death upon his back and marching through the streets to the place of his execution. It's a very Roman image. It's an image with which any first century Jew would have been very familiar. They knew the reality of which Jesus spoke. The weight of his words would not have been lost upon them. They had witnessed the horrifying spectacle of crucifixion. They'd seen the nails, the blood, the agony, the suffocating pain, the shame. This is, of course, the very path that Jesus himself will tread when he finally arrives in Jerusalem. And for many of Mark's original readers, remember the church in Rome during the Neronian persecution? This is their destiny as well. They're seeing their brothers and sisters being hung on crosses and being gathered up in the night and thrown to the wild beasts in the Circus Maximus. For Mark's original readers, Mark 8.35 is not a metaphor. For many in the Roman church, including the Apostle Peter himself, around the year 66, The cost of following Jesus would literally mean carrying their own cross to the place of their death. It has meant the same for many in the history of the church, and it means the same for many today. But to my knowledge, no one in this congregation this morning has ever been threatened with death for the sake of Christ. If I'm wrong on that, I would like to know. That threat does not face us this morning. It doesn't exist right now for us. It may very well be in some of our futures. But for our purposes this morning, we need to go underneath the literal language to the underlying truth that it conveys. We must because what is at stake is infinite and eternal. 
If Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And I want to be among those anyone, I need to know what it means. The following three verses are designed to help us do just that, explaining what it means for us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Jesus Christ on the Calvary Road. The main point which Jesus intends to to convey to his disciples both then and to us today is that just as the Son of Man must suffer many things and die before he can rise to eternal glory, so must everyone who follows him. Suffering is the path to glory for everyone, for anyone who would enter into his kingdom. So as it was for Christ, so it is for Christians. First the cross, then the crown. First the death, then the resurrection. First the shame, then the glory. The Apostle Paul wrote prolifically on this subject of suffering, most notably, I think, in Romans 8.17, where he says that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You will not receive the inheritance with Christ if you do not deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ to suffering. No suffering with Christ, no glory with Christ, no death with Christ, no inheritance with Christ. I have prayed and I pray now that we would not be allowed to just skirt this statement off to the side and think, I'll deal with that later. Eternity hangs in the balance now, today. If anyone would follow Jesus to glory, everyone must follow him to cross-bearing, to self-denial, and to suffering. That's exactly the point that Jesus is making to his disciples in Mark 8. And the point is driven home in verses 35 to 38 by three alternatives that Jesus places before us. Look down at the text with me. I want you to see it. Number one, he says, here's your first choice. You can either save your life and lose it, or you can lose your life and save it. Second alternative which faces us this morning, verses 36 and 37. You can either gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, or you can lose the whole world and gain your soul. Third alternative, verse 38. You can either be ashamed of Christ and of his words and gain the world's praise and acceptance, but you'll lose Christ's approval and acceptance on the day of judgment, or you can confess Christ and his words before the world, lose the world's praise and acceptance, and you will gain Christ's acceptance, the one whose judgment truly matters, on the day of judgment. Those are the three alternatives. Jesus drives the point home to us by placing these three choices immediately before us. So those three alternatives set forth two very different paths and two very different destinies which face you today. One path has us living our best life now. 
Living in safety, verse 35. Prosperity, verses 36 and 37. With the world's approval, verse 38. But the end of that path is the loss of eternal life, verse 35. The forfeit of our eternal soul, verses 36 and 37. And rejection by Christ on the last day, verse 38. That's one way you could go this morning. And if you do nothing with what I say this morning, that's the way you are going. Or, the second path has us suffering now, risking our lives for the sake of Christ and the gospel, verse 35, forfeiting our property and our prosperity of the world, verses 36 and 37, and confessing Christ in his words and thus earning the world's hatred and the world's scorn because the world hates Christ and it hates those who look like him. But the end of that path is the approval and confession of Christ on the last day, which leads to everlasting life. And I want you to notice, nowhere in verses 34 to 38 does Jesus allow for a middle road. Nowhere does he allow for a suburban American Christianity. Nowhere. The way our lives will look if we do nothing about this text will be to try to find a a middle road that does not exist and is actually the road that leads to destruction. Let me say it again another way. If you don't deal with this text and its impact upon your life, you will die forever. That's what's at stake. You can't slough off these verses. So, there are two questions that we need to ask ourselves this morning. Question number one, which path am I on? And second, how do I walk the path that leads to life? Let's deal with the first question. How do I know which path I'm presently on? Am I a deny myself, take up my cross and follow him? Forfeit the world, gain my soul, confess Christ, be confessed by him? Or am I in the other group, still trying to save my life, but wind up losing it? Well, for the persecuted church, this is not a difficult question to answer because the answer does not lie in metaphor, but in literal life and death. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of Jesus' original audience there in Caesarea Philippi beneath the slopes of Mount Hermon. question is, are you going to follow to Jesus? Are you going to follow Jesus to Jerusalem where he's going to be handed over to sinners, rejected by the chief priests and the elders, suffer many things and die? Are you going to follow him there? Because the end for you will probably be the same as the end for him. Or put yourself in the shoes of, 30 years later of Mark's original audience, in the, in the midst of the Neronian persecution, friends, brothers, sisters, fellow church members being hauled off daily, are you going to own Christ as your Lord and confess him before men, or are you going to deny him and try to spare your own fleeting days? When you hear of church members being arrested in the night and put to death in the Circus Maximus, are you going to continue to gather with the church no matter what the cost? Are you going to go underground? 
and live like a pagan and try to pretend that you're not a Christian. Or put yourself in the shoes of a believer today in North Africa or Saudi Arabia or Indonesia who becomes convinced, who sees, they see the treasure of Christ. Are you going to sell everything to get it? Which means, are you going to be openly baptized and risk the rejection of your family, persecution from the community, maybe even death? Or are you going to keep your faith hidden and secret, continue to attend the mosque and say the prayers and keep up the show? The persecuted church is faced with Mark 8, 34-38 in its most literal form. But that's not us. By God's providence, nobody's going to come in here and haul us off this morning. So what do, we, what do we do? How do we know? How do we know if we're following Jesus on the path of suffering or if we're trying to save our life and we'll lose it? When no one is threatening to take your life, how do you know if you're saving your life or losing it? Well, I think it's true that the application of these verses is more difficult for us, but I don't think it's impossible. I think we just need to alter our questions a little bit. For instance, let me ask some questions of you and have you ask them of yourself. What have you risked for the sake of Christ? Safety? Security? Prosperity? Reputation? Position? What is the driving motivation of your life? What gets you up in the morning? Gets you dressed, gets you going, carries you through your day? What do you live for? Is it to gain the world and everything that it offers, to try to make more money, to try to achieve more pleasure, to try to live in more ease, to try to buy bigger houses, to try to buy better cars? Or is it to gain Christ? That is to know him and to make him known. Whose approval do you most desire? I mean, not the answer you know you should give. I mean, deep down. Whose approval do you desire most? Is it the approval of family or friends or employers? Or is it the approval of Christ? And is your answer borne out by the words that you speak and the stands that you take in public? Again, the question goes back to one of risk. Do you risk your reputation and the praise and the approval of men in order to speak the word of Christ and to walk according to his word because you desire his approval more than you desire theirs? See, the bottom line question is, how is your life different for following Jesus than it would be if you didn't? And if it is no different... How can you actually think that you're following Jesus when Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me? Have you suffered loss for the sake of Christ? Have you risked suffering for the sake of Christ? And if you haven't, how can you say honestly that you've denied yourself anything? What have you denied? What cross have you borne? And where have you followed? 
So the first question is hard, and I can't answer it for you. But you can't avoid it, and neither can I. There's no middle road. Jesus doesn't allow for a nice, comfortable Christianity here in the middle in Nixon, Missouri. There's no, there's no Nixa exception for First Baptist Church here. Second question that needs to be answered. How do I walk the path that leads to life? How do I walk the path of risk? How do I walk the path of suffering? And the answer to that question lies underneath every one of those alternatives that Jesus puts before us in 35 to 38. You walk the path of risk, you walk the path of suffering, you walk the path of self-denial and a cross by faith. By faith in what? By faith in the promise that what is offered to you in Christ infinitely outweighs what you risk when you follow him. By faith that the treasure that you obtain if you sell everything so far outvalues anything that you give up that it's a no-brainer for you. That, in the end, is faith. It comes down to a question of, do you actually believe two things? Do you believe that Jesus is infinitely more valuable, infinitely more satisfying, infinitely more glorious, infinitely better than anything you can give up? Do you actually believe that? And secondly, do you actually believe that you must make a choice between one or the other? Anything that you give up that's not a work... It's only the outworking of faith. You risk your earthly life because you believe that eternal life is promised to you, and you make a value judgment. You forfeit earthly prosperity because you believe that an inheritance of infinite value awaits you. You forfeit earthly praise because you believe that the praise of Christ is infinitely better than the praise of men. You risk because you believe. You suffer in faith and you suffer in hope. And as we'll see, you suffer in joy. Again, we turn to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For, in other words, Paul says, this is how I do it. I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worth being compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. I've, I've looked at the glory, I've seen the glory, and now I'm prepared to take all of the sufferings in order they may get that because this cannot compare with what's to come. It's faith. How do we suffer with Christ? By considering, by believing that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us. Choosing risk over safety, choosing suffering over prosperity is the proof that we actually believe that. Or consider the testimony of Hebrews 11 concerning Moses. Hebrews 11.26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking for the reward. So Moses suffered with Israel rather than sitting in the halls of pleasure and power in Egypt because he believed that what God offered him amongst his people was of greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt. He believed, therefore he sacrificed and suffered. 
Or what about the persecuted prophets of old, Hebrews 11.35? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Well, how'd they do that? How'd they endure torture unto death when they could have denied God and secured their release? They did it because they believed that they would rise to a better life than the one they were giving up. The path of Christian discipleship is the path of suffering, the path of risk, the path of self-denial, and it is a path that is walked by faith in the promise that what we gain is infinitely greater than what we give up. This is what it means to sell everything to obtain the treasure. Simply put, it means to deny yourself the kind of life that you would have if you weren't a Christian. And how that works out in your life, in all of your individual circumstances, man, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. And when we end here in two minutes, I'm going to pray that he'd thump you with it. It means believing in a suffering Messiah and becoming his suffering disciple. That's what it means to sell everything to obtain the treasure. Believing in a suffering Messiah and becoming his suffering disciple. But there's one more point left to make, and it is so important. Because the parable of the hidden treasure does not just say that a man found a treasure in the field, sold everything he had in order to buy the field and obtain the treasure. There's one piece missing. It says that he saw the treasure hidden in the field, and out of his joy, he sells everything to buy the field and obtain the treasure. See, the paradox of Christian suffering is that it is a joyful suffering. It's not that we take joy in the pain. We're not Christian masochists. We're Christian hedonists. We look for that which will bring us greater joy, and we're convinced that that greater joy comes through denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. We're after that which will bring us the greatest, most lasting, most satisfying joy, and we're convinced that that joy is in Christ, and Christ says you can't have both. This is the way Jesus suffered, by the way. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. Fix your eyes on Jesus, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And that's how we do it as well. For the joy set before us, we endure the cross, whatever it may be. We despise the shame that comes as a result of it. And then we take our seats at the right hand of God. We take such joy in the treasure that we willingly embrace the suffering in order to obtain it. I want to close by one more testimony. This one comes from the book of Hebrews chapter 10, which if I'm not mistaken was also written to the church at Rome. That's important because so was the gospel of Mark. And so if you're the church at Rome and you're reading Mark's gospel, and you're reading Jesus' words that are calling you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him, to lose your life, and so gain it and receive it, not to try to save your life and therefore lose it, not to try to gain the whole world and forfeit your soul. You're reading those words. Does it have any effect? You bet it does. Let me read you what the author of Hebrews said about the same congregation when persecutions arose. He said, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and catch this, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. You see it? You've got to see in order to sell. Eternity hangs in the balance. They joyfully accepted their earthly possessions being plundered. Why? What produced this joy in the midst of suffering? They knew they had a better possession awaiting them. They knew by faith. They had seen the treasure. And so they joyfully sold everything that they had in order to obtain it. People came and took their property. It's okay. We've got treasure. People came and took their possessions. It's okay. We've got treasure. People scorned them and heaped reproach upon them. They lost their jobs. Everything they own gets confiscated. That's okay. We've got treasure. And you know, the amazing thing is that when we joyfully endure suffering like that, when we don't do what so many people who are convinced of this truth do, which is to say, all right, then I'm just going to grit my teeth, I'm going to endure what comes, and I'm going I'm to struggle all the way to heaven. No, that, doesn't, that does not glorify Jesus. That doesn't show anyone that Jesus is more to be desired than anything in this life. It's only joyful sufferers who adorn the gospel of Christ and show by their joyful suffering that Jesus is more to be desired than what he offers is better than anything this world has to offer. You think about that when you get diagnosed with cancer. You think about that when you lose your job. You think about that when trials and tribulations come your way. People are watching and what you value most is going to be revealed. God open our eyes to see the treasure. And open our hearts to love him more than anything else in this world. Because that's the only way any one of us is going to get into the kingdom of heaven. 